The IDF has shifted their operation in Gaza. There has now been a drone strike in Beirut by Israel that has taken out the deputy Hamas commander. The U.S. has taken out a militia leader in Baghdad. U.S. Secretary of State Blinken is now visiting Israel. The Houthi rebels have launched missiles and drones in the Red Sea. The discussion about what are we going to do with Gaza after the war has begun. Russia and Ukraine are still going. The Israeli Supreme Court has ruled against the new reform laws. Anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish protesters are now suffering backlash in U.S. universities. Those stories and more on Messianic World Update, which begins now. everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. Welcome to another edition of Messianic World Update. Today's date is Friday, January 5th of the year 2024. This is our first broadcast of Messianic World Update in the new year. So in the last week, getting, through, getting us into the new year, the IDF has begun to shift their operations in Gaza. We had shared that before. They were announcing that. And we now understand what some of those changes are going to be. That means that the IDF is now going to be fighting not a war of elimination, but a war of attrition. That means they're going to attrit the enemy. They're going to constantly go at them, but it's not going to be massive firepower all at once, all the time. I think the reason why they've shifted operationally in this is because they need to let many of the reservist soldiers return home. The winter weather has come in. That means rain, that means muddy conditions, that means a lot of them have to return to their jobs because the economy of Israel is based on those people being able to work at their jobs. And the economy of Israel has slowed almost to a crawl as a result of the war. Furthermore, the war of elimination that we're doing is still, the goals are still the same. They're still going after Hamas leaders and they're taking away their strongholds. They're taking away their launch sites. And just recently, the top six Hamas leaders that have been identified essentially have death sentences on them. And wherever they're at in the world, they're in trouble. The IDF chief, Gallant, announced that they need to stop counting the days that Israel leaves Gaza and they need to start counting the days they have left to live. That was his message to the Hamas leaders. Hostage negotiations are still ongoing. There's been attempts to save some of the hostages, some with tragic results, some with success. In fact, there's a U.S. soldier's family, his uncle and others, that were trapped in Gaza when the whole Gaza war started. They could not escape out of Gaza. And this last New Year's Eve, the efforts of the U.S., Egypt, and Israel they were able to secure their safe passage out of Gaza. But they're not saying much about it because there was apparently a lot of clandestine and secret things that were done, and they don't want to see those people harmed that helped them. Israel just hit one of the major Hamas leaders in Beirut, and this is the leader that was of Hamas that was actually involved extensively in the terrorist activity in the West Bank. And there's been a lot of West Bank terrorist activity within Israel. This is the guy who used to be in charge of all of that. He was a deputy leader of Hamas on an international level, had met with Khomeini and with the leader in Lebanon. He was a major guy. 
And apparently what Israel did was they tracked him and had been tracking him. And in fact, Hezbollah warned him that Israel was tracking his every move. Well, he thought he would be safe going into a Hezbollah area in Beirut, Lebanon. Israel sent in drones and aircraft, and it's a rather interesting strike they did. They actually hit him with two missiles. They had to go through two roofs to get to the room where he was at, and the first missile took out the first roof, the second one took out the second roof, and that's how they got him. They also blew up his car. And in the course of killing him, they also took out six other Hamas lieutenants that were with him, and they seriously crippled the Hamas leadership, especially of Hamas people that are in the West Bank. As you can imagine, the Hezbollah chief, Nasrallah, he made very threatening comments about the fact that the Israelis had attacked Lebanon, and Israel decided to beef up the northern border and continue a series of major strikes. Well, actually what happened was this. Israel came up and gave the appearance they were ready to invade Lebanon and take on Hezbollah. Hezbollah is not in a position to fight a defensive war. All of their armaments and all of their troops have been trained to go across the border and attack Israel, not defend Lebanon. And so it became very apparent that Hezbollah was seriously being threatened by Israel at this point although Israel was saying we're simply beefing up the border in case they want to do something. Secretary of State Blinken and the United States have gotten very involved in this discussion and they're trying to put together an agreement that will redefine the border with Hezbollah and Israel. And Netanyahu said we need a new border definition and so interestingly enough, Hezbollah has already pulled all of their military forces back one to two kilometers away from the border with Israel. They are no longer in a position to fire those anti-tank missiles across or other kinds of armaments and pot shots going across the border. It's pretty clear at this point that Hezbollah does not want Israel to come across the border. That doesn't necessarily mean that Hezbollah doesn't want to attack Israel, but clearly they felt threatened by Israel and the U.S. has gone in and Blinken is there right now trying to come up with a new definition for the Hezbollah-Lebanon border with Israel. Again, the Hezbollah forces are in an offensive posture as opposed to a defensive posture. If Israel comes across the border, Hezbollah will suffer greatly. So the Houthi rebels down in the Red Sea are still launching cruise missiles, drones, and ballistic missiles. And thankfully, all of them have been shot down by Allied surface ships in the Red Sea. The U.S., as I shared with you before, has been organizing an international flotilla. It involves nine different nations. And Iran, in support of the Houthi rebels, in a very scary feature, the international press announced this greatly, have moved one of their frigates, one of their warships, into the Red Sea. Oh, my God. One Iranian warship is now in the Red Sea. This, we're gonna to have to rethink the whole equation about what is going on there. This is very threatening. Actually, if that ship blinks, it'll be sunk so fast, it's unbelievable. The US, it's clear that the posture is trying to avoid any kind of escalation. And this is part of the reason why they won't retaliate against the Houthis. They're being very careful about 
attacking the elements that are attacking U.S. forces. In fact, they did not attack the forces that were in Iraq that had been shooting weapons at the U.S. forces. They actually took out a leader, like Israel's strategy, take the leadership out, and they took out that guy in Baghdad who was the guy that was overseeing all of the attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. The discussion has now begun, and we knew it would be coming, called the after-Gaza discussions. After-Gaza discussions are, what are we going to do with Gaza, and how in the world are we going to manage the situation with the Palestinians after we take Hamas out? Well, the far-right-wing members of Netanyahu's coalition, Smotrich and Ben Gavir, they first weighed in on this, and they said, well, let's just immigrate these Palestinians to other nations. Let's send them off to the other Arab nations. And as you can imagine, because of the fact they're far right-wing members speaking about something to do on international relationships, and the rest of the Middle East absolutely wants nothing to do with the Palestinians coming into any of their nations, that was flatly condemned. Even the U.S. came in and condemned these right-wing coalition members of the government making any kind of suggestion that the Palestinians would be displaced from Gaza. Of course, the whole lie that's being offered is that Israel is an occupying force, that Palestine used to originally be there, and Israel came in, took it over from, that's an absolute lie. So the idea of moving Palestinians out of Gaza is just a non-starter. IDF lead Gallant came out this week, and he said, well, let me weigh in on this. He said, I think the local Palestinians that are still in Gaza, they should organize themselves and reestablish their communities. And as far as for protection and security, we should bring an international force in and let them monitor what's going on and to provide security and safety for them and for Israel. It's kind of the same solution we're supposed to have in Lebanon, where we have a UN force that's supposed to come in and be a buffer and maintain control. But the UN force, of course, up in Lebanon has never been able to complete that mission whatsoever. Hezbollah's done whatever they want. But at least it's consistent, the idea is consistent with what the international community has done in the past. And so that idea is on the table. Again, let me repeat it. We'll take the Gaza Palestinians that still remain, let them reestablish their communities, let them organize themselves, and let international forces or the UN step in and provide security and safety for them and for Israel. And that's an after Gaza war discussion that's going on at the moment. The U.S. would love to take advantage of this and claim, no, let's go back to the two-state solution. Let's have a Palestinian state and let's have a state of Israel. That whole argument is dead on arrival. There is no Palestinian entity that can stand up and represent themselves as a nation. And Mahmoud Abbas is old and has already corrupted himself so much that even the Palestinians don't want to listen to him. So that's what's going on there in the Middle East. May I remind you that Russia is still in a war with Ukraine, and Russia lately has been sending more missiles in, even into Kyiv, there in Ukraine, attacking more. Where are they getting all the weapons and so forth from? They're buying them from North Korea and from Iran and buying suicide drones from Iran as well. As far as the war goes, it's a stalemate on the ground. Nobody's advancing, nobody's losing, everybody's staying the same. But Ukraine is suffering at continued missile strikes into their cities. 
The U.S. aid for Ukraine, as you know, is hung up in Congress, as well as the U.S. aid for Israel, because the Republicans have finally grown a spine, apparently, and said, before we authorize aid to those areas, we want the U.S. to do something about the southern border. Whether or not the Republicans will be tough enough to hang in there and stick to their guns, there is a possibility that this whole thing politically within the Congress will expand to even shutting down the U.S. government. It's a high stakes game of playing chicken with each other. And Ukraine, Israel, and, and the citizens of the United States are the ones that are going to suffer if we can't get the White House to agree to do something about the southern border and all of the immigrants flooding across. Well, back in Israel, the Israeli Supreme Court has ruled against the new basic law by the Knesset. If you remember, before the war started, there was a huge controversy, lots of protests in the city, and the government, the right-wing government of Netanyahu's coalition, tried to make some adjustments to the Supreme Court, how judges are selected, basic law structure, and they wanted to override what the Supreme Court has been doing for the last 20 years, which is called the reasonableness law. If a law was passed by the government and the Supreme Court ruled, well, we just don't think that's reasonable, we're just going to nullify it. And they wanted to change the law, the government wanted to change the law, so that they have to have a basis of, they have to have a reason to shut down the law. They have to say the law is in violation of something else. Rather than let the judges, they just get to rule Israel unilaterally and they're not subject to any accountability by any other parts of the government. The laws that they passed and tried to put there, well, the Supreme Court ruled on them and threw them all out. So we're right back to square one with regard to what was going on in the consternation with the Netanyahu government before the war started. Here in the U.S., in recent couple of weeks, we've seen the anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish actions taking place on various universities, primarily University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, MIT, and those presidents came in before Congress. You heard their testimony. It didn't go well for them because they would not speak against those actions, and as a result, University of Penn president did resign. The president of Harvard has just recently resigned. And it's brought a lot of attention to these people were preaching that you shouldn't be a racist, you shouldn't be a misogynist, you should be kind to other people, respectful to other people. Well, it turns out that all this advocation for a woke ideology, it turns out they're the real racist. And now it's become apparent by going over the line and being anti-Jewish and anti-Israel that they're just a bunch of racists. And so all this rhetoric we've been hearing about against white men and against conservatives, against Israel as the nation and the Jewish people, it's all coming into check now. Congressmen and leaders are now speaking out against it. And they, all of the woke ideology is back on its heels. Hopefully, it'll get knocked completely down and we won't have to deal with it anymore. Finally, let me share something interesting with you. I found this fascinating. President Biden, when he came back off his vacation, had lunch with some top scholars and historians this week. They were having a lunch with him to discuss, quote, his legacy, having to do with equity and democracy under assault. That, that was the phrase. You know, he's been saying that. 
But apparently, he's never really made a succinct speech yet in his presidency that really outline uh, that and lays it out for the American people. So they came to him and they said, you need to start making speeches and let us record them for the historical record to represent what your ideology is and what your philosophy is and what those things mean to you. They said, you got to start making your speeches because you don't have any speeches for us to record as a historian. You know, most presidents make all kinds of speeches and they record, well, Biden in three years hasn't made any speeches worth recording for his legacy. I, I think I kind of know why he hasn't do it and I think I know why he's not going to be making those speeches. It's because he can't read a teleprompter accurately and he can't talk coherently on his own. So I think they're facing a major problem as to what the legacy of Joe Biden is going to be for the historical record of American presidents because he doesn't know how to make a speech. And the ones he do, he fluffs and blows them up. And so there you have it. That's our president, that's our country, and this is the state of affairs in the world this week. Shabbat shalom to all of you, and I'll see you next week while we watch the Middle East blow up.